Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm Joe McCall. I got a special guest on today named Scott Myers. A lot of you guys have heard him. He has been big in the business of self-storage and commercial projects for a long, long time. And I'm just honored to have Scott here on the podcast. Mm. Thank you for being here, Scott. First, guys, a couple homework things. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Go to, you know, I don't know what your favorite podcast app is. Mine is Apple Podcasts. And I have another one I like called Pocket Casts. There's a hundred of them out there, but subscribe to the show, please. If you like the show, we release two or three episodes a week. And a lot of y'all, if you don't subscribe, you don't know that a new episode came out. And so you got to check that out. We also do about two or three videos a week on my YouTube channel. Go check out the YouTubes. Go to just search for Joe McCall. You'll see my channel there. We have a lot of good content. Even my coaching business partner, Gavin, releases content out. I'm in the middle right now of a series called Deals Gone Bad. We're interviewing people that have done bad deals, and we all have. And you'll see the whole series of those episodes as well. So go subscribe to the podcast. And if you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now. We'd appreciate it. And like and share the videos and YouTube and stuff like that. Cool. I got one more announcement here. A lot of you guys know about my book. In fact, it's called Simple Lease Options. And you guys get this for free when you watch my webinar and talk all about how to do lease option deals. My subtitle here, the easiest and fastest way to do more deals in any market. Scott may disagree with me. He might like other types of deals better. But this book you will get for free if you attend the webinar. If you go to sloclass.com, the link will be in the show notes. SLO, SLO stands for Simple Lease Options. sloclass.com, go watch the webinar and get my book for free. All right, enough of the uh, intro stuff. Scott, how are you, sir? I am fantastic, Joe. Good to see you again. How about yourself? Doing well. We saw each other a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that? At a mastermind. Now, I'm looking outside right now in St. Louis. It's raining and overcast. I'm assuming it's probably in low 40s. It's about the same where you are. I, I think it's a mirror image here in Indianapolis. Uh, correct. Yes. So we were meeting last time in Florida mm -hmm. and you're in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been in the business a long time, Scott. How long have you been doing real estate? I've been in real estate since uh, 1993. That's when I bought my wow. first uh, single family rental and then I've been in self-storage since 2005. 2005. Mm -hmm. Wow. You're one of the uh, people in the industry that have been around for the longest, who has done the most self-storage deals, one of the largest commercial investors um, in the country doing this type of stuff. You've been really busy. You talk a little bit about how you and why you got started in real estate. And then I want to ask you about why you chose self-storage. Sure. Well, I think like uh, many of us, uh, Joe, that get uh, turned on to uh, real estate, um, it, it's usually a book that we've read or a guru that we've run across. And in my case, it was uh, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was, you know, at a time uh, back in 1993, I uh, just got my first job. And well, um, the book yeah. was released that early? Yeah, was it? it was. I mean, that has been around for a long time, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe it came uh, a a shortly after that, but... Okay. Boy, it was at a time when I was um, looking around and learning uh, about how to invest in, uh, you know, yeah. Wall Street stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, you know, to pad my 401k. Yeah. And yeah, the more people I talked to and the more I looked around, uh, you know, real estate, it, more people had made wealth in real estate than any other type of investment, including uh, the stock market. And so I remember hearing about the book in 96. Is that right? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So it was somewhere so right the, around but that I mean, time. The book had already been out a few years. Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
so that's what kind of sparked it. And that was, uh, that was really the mind shift. And, um, you know, still maxing out my 401k with my employer, uh, but then started buying single family rental houses and putting them up with a lease option on them, you know, rehabbing them, trying to get the top of the, the market in terms of a, the after repaired and an appraised value, refinance, um, pull that cash out and then uh, go plunk that down in uh, others. So also following, uh, as I mentioned, one of the gurus at the time, um, both Ron Legrand and Carlton Sheets, um, you know, the whole model of uh, you know, wanting to get up to the place where I had about 15. Uh, rentals or so uh, that were owned free and clear. And, um, you know, then lease optioning some, selling some off along the way to uh, pad the cash flow and make sure that we were safe and secure. So that's that's how I got into the business and then realized, and I was still doing this part-time and it was, um, I guess, a, a, a hobby. And so it wasn't really focused on it. I wasn't really paying attention to the numbers as well as I should have. And just green, you know, learning the the things that you don't really learn or experience until you're in it. I didn't find all the cash flow and the freedom and the mailbox money like, you know, the gurus had uh, told me. And so I thought, well, I just need to double down and economies of scale will fix this issue. And so I started buying apartments. Were you working yeah. a full-time job at the time? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So nights searching for uh, properties, weekends doing a lot of the rehab on my own and then uh, with the help of some handyman and then managing it all on my own as well. And this was, you were doing this in Indianapolis? Correct. Yep. All in uh, Indianapolis. And then um, in 97 is when I got married and my wife and I have an agreement. Well, sort of had an agreement. Um, I would go out and create the messes and she would follow behind with the pooper scooper and clean them all up and <laughs> put things in place. And she was the detailed uh, person until, um, until she said, uh, either I quit or you fire me. Uh, I'm not spending all my weekends, um, you know, doing this business. And so that's when we begin to get more help and get more serious and started buying uh, apartments so that we could get that economy as a scale and get to a level that, you know, we, we had the ability to hire property managers and other folks um, to be able to handle that side of the business while we ran our life. And we both had uh, W2 jobs at the time. Well, got up to about 420 apartment units in multiple complexes uh, around central Indiana and I realized it just kind of compounded the problem and still it, it didn't have the, the cash flow and the freedom like I wanted. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, when somebody doesn't pay and they destroy your property to, to go to court to get a little pink piece of paper for them only to say, well, this is a non-payment of rent and excessive wear and tear. And here's the amount. Um, good luck. Go try to get them when essentially these folks are legally stealing from us and destroying and vandalizing our properties, um, no matter how you look at it. And I thought, yeah, there's got to be another way to get out of this business, but staying into real estate. You know, To your, your original question, Joe, I mean, the reason why I got into real estate is that hopefully the, the same reason we all do. And that is there's no other investment out there where we can borrow money to buy it. We can leverage to, to buy it, whatever the source. When we buy it, we can create value. We can force the appreciation by fixing it up. And then we put a renter in the property to pay down our basis or pay off our basis. And we still have a hard asset that produces income that we can also depreciate at the same time. I'm sure your folks know this and you've been preaching this forever, but you know there's no other investment out there that allows that. So if I could just figure out a way to get rid of the tenants and toilets and trash, I'd be happy. And so it's either parking lots or, or self-storage. And so uh, you can't really create a lot of value in a parking lot. So I began looking into self-storage and liked what I saw. Okay, so um, Um, this is really mm -hmm. interesting because everybody has their kind of journey into whatever preferred real estate Mm -hmm. strategy they like. But houses aren't for everybody. Apartments aren't for everybody. There was Mm -hmm. a big video yesterday of my friend Alex Pardo. It was really good. It was a debate between two house guys and two apartment guys Mm -hmm. talking about, I don't know if you saw this. Um, I haven't yet. It was really good. Mm-hmm. Alex Pardo from the Flip Empire podcast. Mm-hmm. You guys should go check it out. And it was very cool to watch these two guys argue back and forth about mm-hmm. which was better, houses or apartments. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine if you would have been on that, you would have been able to bring up some really good points about why maybe there's another strategy mm-hmm. that you 
should also look at too, right? Absolutely. And it, it, interesting you say that, Joe. I've, uh, I've uh, been on some of those uh, panel discussions where people in the multiple asset classes are talking about all the challenges. And I'm usually the guy at the end that just sits there and smiles and says, I don't have that problem. I don't have those problems. I, mean, I don't have to deal with that anymore. And <laughs> so, and a couple of times I had a little fun with that uh, with some larger crowds at some of the larger uh, uh, events. But yeah. yeah, that's, you know, once we got into the side, when people don't pay in self-storage, we have the ability to put a, a lock on their units. It's called an overlock. And then if they still don't pay their back rent and all their late fees, um, we don't take it off until they do. And if they don't, after 90 days, we get to sell their stuff and we recoup our back rent and our late fees. So that alone is worth the price of admission in getting into the side of the business. All right, so let's talk about what self-storage is. Sure. Maybe what it isn't. Mm -hmm. Self-storage, you know, when I think of self-storage, I think of a um, of a place kind of out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you're seeing more and more of them being built mm-hmm. in the cities, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm, when I when I think of self storage, I think of these rundown places way out in the sticks, you know, with fence that looks tattered and beat up, and mm-hmm. and place where you can rent and put your stuff there, but mm-hmm. nobody ever goes there. So like my dad, <laughs> growing up, my dad was a janitor. He owned a cleaning business and hardest working guy I know. But he couldn't afford an office or a warehouse, mm-hmm. so he just got mm-hmm. self-storage units and kept his cleaning supplies in there and mm-hmm. had his office in there. He actually had a desk yeah. Yeah. in the in the garage of the storage mm-hmm. unit. So anyway, what is a storage unit uh, facility yeah. and what is not? Uh, well, first of all, the industry's come a long way since then, uh, yeah. Joe, and your perception of it. Uh, as you mentioned now, if you look around self-storage, just come to Main Street and um, you, you see the bright, uh, shining three-story, you know, with glass uh, front uh, facilities, all temperature controlled right next to Walmart and uh, yeah. in people's path of travel when they're on their way to the grocery store and a school and church or what have you. It is no longer those uh, single-story sheds that are out, um, you know, in the middle of a farm field or tucked back in an industrial park. Yeah, It's an essential business. Um, and it has, in, in the literal sense, as we've gone through this pandemic and is one of the essential businesses and it's an essential need. One in 10 households rents one or more self-storage rental units. It's wow. involved in cities' master plans as, as an essential business. Um, when they're laying out the city, they know that they're going to need storage. And so, you know, the build it and they will come and stick up some garages out in the sticks is um, not essentially uh, what this is any longer. So we've, we cut our teeth and we made a, a lot of uh, money in the, those secondary and tertiary markets, not, not way out in the suburbs or in the farm fields, but buying these Class C facilities that are in the path of progress. And then taking it from a class C to a class B as the growth comes, you know, and, and adding the, the fence and security and additional buildings and taking the gravel parking lot and making it to asphalt and putting in the security and, and a person behind the counter that is a well-trained uh, and is a salesperson with a nice logoed shirt on instead of the uh, gentleman that used to be behind the uh, counter wearing a, um, an old dirty, you know, wife beater tank top smoking on a cigar and barely cigar. up from the desk you know, when somebody walks in. Beer. So that, yeah. that's where we've come. Oh, wow. I'm seeing them everywhere being built out here in the suburbs where I am in St. Louis. Really, again, nice facilities. I'm thinking, wow, mm-hmm. these can't be cheap building, but I'm, a, I'm guessing they're cheaper to build than apartment buildings. Would they be? Yeah. So the traditional style, if you want to call it, so that the, the single story, all steel buildings that are still being built, um, you know, in, in the secondary markets, in the suburbs, tertiary markets, those are roughly $30, $35 a foot all in minus the land to build. And right. that includes fencing, security, and all the technology that we put into them. So yes, considerably less. Uh, but even when you get into the multi-story facilities, adding an elevator and 
the, the different type of style of uh, structure and concrete and footings that you need to build those, they're still only at um, anywhere from you know roughly $55 on the low end. Um, they can go up as high as $100 a foot, but uh, roughly $55 to $80 a foot to build uh, the multi-story facilities, all temperature controlled with elevators and, and all the bells and whistles. So um, absolutely. And, and compared and, to an apartment building, which is mm-hmm. about what per square foot to build? You're still at, a, at 100 to 120 in many cases, depending on, on the class and where, where it's yeah. located. And that, that's, all, of course, all minus the land, uh, comparing apples to apples. Yeah. Yet the, one of the interesting pieces to that, Joe, is that when we look at the industry averages for apartments, uh, they get uh, roughly a dollar a square foot per month in rent average across the country. And so storage is averaging about a buck ten a square foot. So wow. it, it costs less to build it and we get 10 cents more roughly on average per square foot to rent it. So you, you can see why the asset class is gaining a lot of popularity for investors in Wall Street yeah. alike. Okay, so ten dollars more, ten times more, in and rent. ten cents per square foot more. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, wow, that's really good. Now, some people look at self storage and think, well, first of all, let me let me rewind a little bit more for a beginner, somebody just getting into sure. it. Are you teaching them how to go build huge storage facilities or to find mm-hmm. existing ones? Yeah, and to that need some work and fix them up. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's finding an existing facility. Um, first of all, the easiest and the fastest way to get into the self storage business is, yeah. is to buy an existing one, but but also for folks that are new to self-storage, um, when they go, if they were to go to the bank and say, hey, I want to build this $9 million, you know, three-story gleaming self-storage facility, they're going to say, well, what experience do you have? And therefore, quickly ushered out the door. But if you have an existing uh, facility in a secondary uh, market and you can show the value add and you can show, you know, historical track record of occupancy and on a P&L, what this thing brought in, and then a solid business plan, which is, um, hey, we're going to take it from a class C to a B. We're going to raise rents. Here's what we're going to do in marketing. We're going to had a website where the mom and pop owners never had one. And um, you know, some of the technology that reduces the expenses and show them the path of profitability, then you know that is what bankers like to, to, to see. And because they're looking more to the strength of that property and that project more than they are to the strength of the borrower and, and their W-2 like they would if they're just buying you know a single right. family residence uh, right. to live in. So that combined with the fact that self-storage also has the lowest loan default rate of all commercial asset classes, uh, bankers are, they, they really like to have self-storage facilities on the balance sheet because it just it, it makes sense and, and it does so well during good times and during bad times. Nice. Okay, so how do you find these mom and pop mm-hmm. self storage? facilities. That's a secret, Joe. I know you got a large audience. I'm not going to tell everybody your secret. I mean, come on. <laughs> All right. But there is a way to find them. There is. So we teach as well. We invest and in, uh, we have an education and a business and we've been teaching people how to do just that. And so yeah. my favorite way is, is still quite honestly doing direct mail to the owners, yeah. you know, buying a list, Creating a, a list of all the facility owners, uh, we, we tell our students to start within a two-hour radius of their home. And uh, number 10 envelope, looks like a letter from mom, handwritten, hand-stamped, um, a generic letter that um, really hasn't changed in the past 15 years, uh, minus yeah. a few tweaks here and there. Sometimes our logo on top, sometimes without. We do A-B testing on it. It doesn't matter too much. Uh, but we're still getting six to eight percent response rate on that mailer to these owners uh, with what we have in it. it that's crazy. That's, a, that's huge. That's like eight mm-hmm. times more than it is. Uh, we were getting two to three percent when we were sending them out for our houses and even our small, you know, apartment complexes and duplexes. And you know, roughly six to eight percent is what we're getting on the storage side. I thought direct mail was dead, Scott. Absolutely not. It's our it's our favorite way. That along with you know running out the ground balls, which is you know making those relationships, creating those relationships with the brokers in your area, the ones that are. Listening 
listing and, and doing a lot of self-storage deals. And then also this is um, here, here, I guess, is this one of the secrets, uh, Joe, and that is the mom and pop owners. Uh, many of them look at this, their their self-storage facility as a, as a small business versus a, a commercial real estate. And and it is. I can't make that argument or the debate. You put, you know, 100 self-storage owners in a, in a room and um, ask them to raise their hand. 50% will say that uh, we own a business. 50% will say it's real estate. And then almost all of them would agree that it's both. And so we go to the small business brokers and um, many, many of these oh. facilities end up listed there oh. uh, with these small business brokers. And even though it's in the public eye and we all want pocket listings, I guess the secret sauce is the fact that many of these business brokers don't know how to evaluate a self-storage facility like we do as commercial real estate in terms of an NOI and a cap rate. They're looking at it from EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, yeah. and amortization. Yeah. And when you use that model for um, valuating these, um, there are many, many undervalued self storage facilities um, for sale out there. If people are willing to go out and take uh, take a look and understand and learn how to underwrite these things properly, what would you say to somebody who is just maybe a little intimidated about self storage? I mean, they're having a hard enough time mm-hmm. getting their head around the house. I get it. Mm-hmm. And now they're they're interested or they're intrigued with self storage. They're thinking, oh man, that's going to be too complicated. That's going to be too hard. How, what do you say to somebody who thinks that? I'm sure you've had this discussion now, and, and many of these folks have heard this before, is that it takes about the same amount of time to get into a small yeah. commercial property than it does uh, as it does to do a single family house or something along those lines. Yeah. And truly it does. The time, you know, we're talking about a 90 day time frame from the time you identify something as an opportunity and then underwrite it and evaluate it and turn it into a deal and get it closed. So maybe a little longer time frame, but the difference is you have a, a different skill set. Instead of saying, here's what I'm going to pay for this um, house, here's what it's going to cost in repairs. And from the comps that I see, here's the after repaired value. Here's here's the yield. Here's my spread. Well, on self-storage, it's a little different and it, it is a longer road to get to that. And that is, what are all the income and the expenses of this facility? Once I find out my net operating income, then I apply a market cap rate, essentially appraising it myself, and then take a look at where I'm buying it versus where I can take it if I raise the rents to the market rate and doing some market analysis and then understanding when I sell it, uh, when I exit, which is where we always make the money. Uh, well, it's when we receive the money that we've made because of all the homework we did on the front end. It's it's understanding that piece and the art and the science um, behind the math of underwriting a self-storage facility, much like you would an apartment complex or um, you know a retail strip center or anything else. It's looking at it from that income and expense NOI and cap rate standpoint versus the, the ARV standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah, good. So your goal with these things when you're looking for them, is it to buy and hold and keep them? Or are you trying to, is your goal to sell them and make some money? Yeah, a, a little bit of both, but we were buy and hold um, in, in the beginning. Uh, well, in the beginning of my real estate career period, and then um, looked at doing that with apartments and then self-storage. But, you know, it's interesting. There, I, I read a book by Brian Burgess, I think, B, B-E-R-G-E-S. Um, it's how to buy and sell apartment buildings. This is also an older book, Joe. I'm going back a little bit. And he had a graph that was in the front of this book. And he talked about that model, the buy and hold model versus the buy, create value, and then sell. And if you you know extrapolate and then look at the math, if you were to find undervalued apartment buildings, in his case, where we find undervalued self-storage facilities, and we ramp it up and create that value, say in three years, um, five years for development projects, and then we sell and recapture that, and then redeploy that capital and do it with bigger projects or more, you exponentially explode your wealth by that model versus buying, creating value, and then tying up all that working capital in that facility or in that apartment complex while you just um, you know eke out some increases each year for you know three to five percent increases in rent. Once your depreciation burns off, you know there's uh, there is a holding cost, and that's why you know your internal rate of return it goes down over time. Once you've created that value, then it's just kind of steady. So along with an answer to your question, uh, we're in the mode right now where we syndicate and we bring a lot of investment 
investors in and they don't, they want to put their money to work. So as soon as we get that, then, you know, our, our target value, we're going to sell it or we're going to refinance it and everybody gets their money back and we go out and do it again with a larger pot of money to do more deals or bigger deals. So we will keep some, but for the most part, um, you know, five year hold on most of our projects uh, until I decide to slow down a little bit more, but that's not going to be anytime soon. It's interesting here. Um, I'm just writing some notes. Can you talk about an example deal one of your students have done? A good typical example mm-hmm. deal from one mm-hmm. of your students, mm-hmm. and uh, what did they do to find it? And then yeah. what did you mm-hmm. what did you do with it? Yeah, I'd say you know if I could sum most of these up, our students are starting at the same place that we started. You know, our sweet spot is in these facilities that are you know maybe as low as 100 units, but usually around 150 units on up to to 400 units in size. That's anywhere, depending upon the market, 500,000. And depending upon the occupancy and the condition it's in, 500,000 on up to maybe a million and a half going in. And then the idea behind that, what we search for is, again, these value add. They haven't raised rates in 10 years because they just want to stay full. They haven't added technology and thereby reducing uh, their accounts uh, receivable and reducing the payroll of a person behind the counter. We like to find some projects where they're on four to five acres, but they only have buildings on three to four. And they're in a market that has demand. And so we build additional buildings and then we fill those up. And once uh, we get them stabilized at 85 to 90% occupancy, then we, again, either refinance or sell. And, and the goal, goal is a 2X multiple on these. So if we're buying them for 500, I want to be selling it for a million in, in three years or so. If I'm buying it for a million and a half, I want to sell it for 3 million. Yeah. And um, so that that is roughly the goal and the, and the model that, that we follow and what our students are doing. And of course, some of them are knocking it out of the park and doing much um, greater than that and putting, you know, a million and a half to $2 million in their pocket after three to four years on, on one single project. And those are real numbers. Those are, um, that's not pie in the sky. That's the beauty of commercial real estate and, and the power of the cap rate. For these kinds of deals, can you get as much depreciation from them as you can with an apartment building? And, and I would say even more so uh, because of the nature of the, the construction of this. Um, we have a steel that is a, a moving part. Uh, we have movable walls. We have doors. And that makes up the bulk of the cost of a self-storage facility. So when we do a cost segregation analysis, and, and, and if you compare it in, in a nutshell, I'll, I'll explain the theory behind it, but in real numbers, self-storage as a comparison gets a roughly 20% more in terms of a cost seg, what we can depreciate at an accelerated rate versus apartments, because all those are fixed and uh, they're a long, longer term use, whereas ours, uh, they move, they have screws in them, we can move our walls, um, we can take those uh, roll up doors down. So much more is able to be depreciated at an accelerated rate in that seven year time frame. So it makes it much more attractive to us as, as the primary investors, but also in our syndications for our equity partners that come along with us. You know, that's another benefit and why we're able to attract more folks because um, if they invest in a passive investment with us versus an apartment complex, yeah, they, they not only get high returns, but they also get that accelerated depreciation that rolls through to their K1 and, and to their bottom line. I wanted to ask that. So if you are raising money mm-hmm. with other private investors. Mm-hmm. Can you share the depreciation with them? Absolutely. Um, by nature, the way that uh, our funds are, are set up and we create a fund for a self-storage project, they all get shares. Uh, they, they get anywhere from 30 to 70% of the shares. And so depending upon the percentage that they own, they get to share in that same percentage of the depreciation on that project. And it rolls all, all down because they are equity partners. Oh, that's nice. Because that's better mm-hmm. than just, we'll give you a certain interest, which might be good. Right. But it, it also, is, but this is better. <laughs> this is way better. If, if if you're tired of paying taxes, 
um, certainly helps. Uh, so when you are, I'll, I'll talk about raising money here in a minute. So in terms of cash flow, I know you said you're flipping them now. You're, you're mm-hmm. stabilizing them. You're increasing the values, and then you're selling them and really getting good returns. Are, are some of them? Do you just keep for long-term mm-hmm. cash flow? Yeah, uh, we do, and we will. We've got a conversion uh, project up in uh, Michigan that we're going to to keep for the foreseeable future. That's just a just a cash monster for us, and I mean that alone is taking care of us. So we've got uh, others that we're looking at, and some that we'll we've structured primarily to refinance and hold on to. One of those is in Birmingham, Alabama and another one outside of uh, Tampa. Those are the, uh, and one in, in Wisconsin. Uh, those are the four that I can think of off the top of my head. We've got roughly 41 projects right now that we're in um, various um, process of um, in, in lease-up development um, or in stabilization. So more and more to come. I'm still, <laughs> I don't know about yourself, Joe, but uh, kind of like the, the cobbler, uh, children who have no shoes. We've got, I've got a plot of land here in Indianapolis, um, you know, that we've been looking to build on for two years, but we've been just very busy and very blessed and fortunate that you know we've got a lot of joint venture folks, you know, developers and uh, owners and operators that come to us that uh, want to get us involved and, and need help assisting with uh, raising capital and uh, the operation side as well. And so, you know, our, our and our first priority is always uh, to our, our students and the folks that we coach and mentor and consult with as well. And so they they bring projects to us that we're working on. So so eventually we'll do more of that that are on our own. But uh, right now we're taking a you know a small piece of a lot of other projects out there, and uh, we want to make sure that all those folks are taken care of because we've put ourselves out there. And that's what we said we do. And so that's what we're doing. What would be an example deal that let's say it's a 150 unit facility? Mm-hmm. What, what are the example? What are some numbers on that? What would one expect for cash flow? If that makes sense. Um, obviously, the answer to all of your questions, Joe, is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> right. And in that range, um, some of the projects that we bought that were um, in that 150 to maybe I'd say 300 unit uh, range, um, we're, we're expecting to see, you know, maybe, you know, I'd say going into it, four to five thousand dollars a month in a positive cash flow. But the good news is, is that a very, very low down payment. Um, we we've got SBA loans that will go up to ninety percent of that for um, uh, projects that people are doing uh, for the first time, and we can also bring our equity partners in. So you know, our cash on cash is even much greater than that. But um, that is roughly what you can expect of a, of a good project. Sometimes going into it, it doesn't need much uh, assistance, but certainly on the back end, once you get it stabilized and uh, get the rents up and uh, occupancy up with a, you know uh, some repairs uh, to it, and again, depending upon the project, but I would expect that most um, uh, facilities that size across the country to expect somewhere between four to five thousand dollars a month, net, net, net. I'm assuming these are recession proof, aren't they? We never say recession proof, do we, Joe? Nothing's recession proof. <laughs> However, self storage is very recession resistant and That's- inflation resistant. You know, when, when times are good, like what we've experienced for the past uh, ten years in this booming economy, people are buying more stuff. They have a need for more stuff, and or they have a need to store more stuff, and so it goes into storage. And uh, we have uh, benefited from that greatly. Uh, but during a recession, it, it absolutely is the very um, it is considered the most resist- uh, recession resistant asset class because when the uh, the development falls it dries up, meaning the, the banks shut that off. They're not doing speculative deals for a while like we saw back in 08. That's one. We have new, no new supply coming in or very, very little. Uh, we have businesses that are downsizing and are putting their excess inventory or goods or machinery or office you know, equipment into storage until things turn back around again or they're subleasing their office. Um, and that's what we're seeing right now. And then the individuals, um, you know, if they, they are, um, if the unemployment rate goes up, they can't afford a house or their apartment that they're in. They're moving in with the adjust. They're moving back home. The extra or a small 
all are replaced, the, the extra stuff goes into storage. And so that's what we're seeing, what we always see during a recession. And that's what we've been preparing for for the next one. And, you know, layer on top of that, the environment that we're in right now with COVID. And, um, you know, the, the students were sent home very quickly from college um, in the spring. And so there was a rush to put all their, their things in storage. Um, businesses, uh, many of them were decimated immediately and had to put inventory and goods into storage right away. And then combine that with the fact that a lot of W-2 workers were sent home from the office. And so one, maybe two workers, mom, dad, and, and the household were left scrambling to find a, a workspace um, in a spare bedroom or um, the kitchen, dining room. And so all that furniture went into storage. And so we've had three huge bumps in uh, occupancy and demand for storage, even before we head into the recession, where once the free money is gone and we see you know the jobless rate um, continue to rise and, and the pain of that, more people will be doing just like they've done in every other recession. And again, we don't celebrate a pandemic and we don't celebrate a recession, but you know, quietly, we know that um, our industry is going to benefit from that and, and we've been preparing for it. Okay, let's, let's talk about financing a little bit here. Sure. How it sounds to me like because of the style of type of business that it is, it's maybe a little easier to get financing for these things, mm-hmm. isn't it? Than a, uh, in a traditional multifamily unit mm-hmm. apartment. Yeah, and that's what we found. Again, going, you know, taking that jump from single family going to apartments. Again, banks are looking at the strength of the project or the property more than the strength of the borrowers. So once you do make you make that jump into commercial real estate um, or beginning to do so, uh, I think that's the biggest fear. So you know, that's probably the biggest point to get across to everyone is you know the sooner the better to begin looking at commercial. You know, everybody feels like they don't have they haven't paid their dues or have the right to do so. I'm I'm telling you, you do. And then self storage, um, it is a little bit easier. And I and I know every answer that I've given. And, you know, makes it sound like this is the best thing since sliced bread. But when my back was against the wall and my credit was shot and I had no cash when I was in the apartment and, and housing business, um, it, I found it very easy to get into self-storage because, yeah, the, the, the nature of the business, the industry itself is your ally because it has the lowest loan default rate compared to well, all other a, asset classes. You're also getting business loans. Is that right? You can Correct. say you can get an SBA loan. Mm-hmm. Yep, for our acquisitions that have a, a component to it where we're expanding or doing extensive repairs, we can layer in two different SBA loans, uh, the 504 and the 7A uh, for for the business of uh, self-storage. Interesting. They're going up to 90% LTV on those, and they are very less restrictive in terms of the borrowers that they're looking to come in, you know, less stringent, I should say, from an underwriting standpoint, because they that's the SBA's job is to get money into yeah. new business owners' hands to continue to spark the economy and keep it going. So and, that- and correct me if I'm wrong. You can't get an SBA loan on an apartment building, can you? That is correct. That is correct. Again, unique to self-storage. And, and yeah. we're very thankful that we have uh, the ability to tap into the SBA for these types of loans. But that and the community banks, credit unions, savings and loans, th- those community banks, those are the folks that we go to that want the portfolio loans that want to keep loans on their balance sheet. They want the safest. Um, yeah. So therefore, yeah. they just look at the stats. And so, yeah, they're clamoring for self-storage deals. Which makes it easier to buy and raise money for, right? Because you're not having to raise 20, 25% down like you would with right. an apartment building mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. private money. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're looking at maybe raising 10% from private money. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that just makes it a lot easier. It does. And the returns are easier because uh, that additional 10% instead of at 80 yeah. or 75 is also cheaper money than we give our investors. So it, it continues the gift that keeps giving and it just makes the projects much easier. So I know it's it depends. I'm going to ask you another question. A typical 150, 200 unit facility that needs some updating. About how much would that cost? Yeah. So... If we're in a looking at a secondary tertiary market and it's a class C facility that we're looking to take to a class B, depending upon what it has and depending upon what the market or our competition looks like will dictate the improvements that we make. 
if every if this has a uh, gravel roads and everybody else is paved or 50% of the folks uh, have asphalt and paving, yeah, we're probably going to put that in the budget to keep up with them. If it's a, some of these rural areas, more rural areas, nobody has a fence and it's not needed because if somebody happens to break into a unit and they steal a bike, well, somebody's going to see, hey, Johnny, that's not your bike. Go put it back. <laughs> it's going like like Mayberry. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, again, in the in a market in which you know the rest of the competition or half of them have a fence, we'll put a fence and a security gate up and security cameras and put the um, you know the multi-screen, uh, multiplex screens in the back when somebody walks into the office. Uh, we may put a kiosk in, uh, which is uh, essentially now just an iPad on a pole when they walk into uh, a quasi office that is even open after hours where they can complete um, the transaction and rent a unit and get access to a gate code to be able to get into the facility um, to either compete or in some instances, you know, we may be the first to market to implement, you know, a, a kiosk or, you know, a red box now ATM out front of the facility for people to be able to rent a, a unit. And then updating of um, signage, you know, changing the name, um, some branding, uh, adding additional lighting to make sure that it looks uh, safe and secure. And then, uh, yeah, then the rest of it is curb appeal like we do in any other facility yeah. because we find that it's usually mom that gets um, stuck with the task of putting all of um, dad's <laughs> and their kids stuff into storage. And she wants to go to a nice, safe, you know, clean, secure place. And we want to show that in pictures on the website yeah. as well. So how much would that facility cost that needed all that work? Um, you know, if we're adding, you know, do, doing updating, it could, all of that, upwards of $200,000. If we're adding all the technology and fencing and, uh, and, and asphalt, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. So two hundred grand in work to get it fixed up ready, but then how much would that cost right. on average? Yeah. So the Five. facility itself, again, you know, if we're looking at a $500,000, um, you know, a 150 unit facility, 500 to maybe 800,000 and then another 200 on top of it, perhaps. And those are round numbers back of the napkin. Yeah. Yeah. Very round numbers. So you'd need 750 grand maybe for a mm -hmm. facility like that. I'm trying to bring the point up where yep. if you can get a loan for night, if you only need to raise you know, 10%, you, know, you only have to raise 75 grand. Like mm -hmm. some of you guys may think, oh, that's a lot of money, but really that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Like you, a lot of you guys listening to this probably have that right now yeah. in your own self-directed IRA or soon mm -hmm. to be self-directed mm -hmm. IRA. Right. Mm -hmm. And so right. it's not, I'm not, I just want to bring the point in that you don't mm -hmm. need to have, you know, a million dollars in the bank mm -hmm. to start investing in self-storage facilities. Yep. And if you don't have the 75 grand, well, it's not that hard to raise that, mm -mm. right? No, you're not even talking to syndication or going through anything lengthy at that point. I mean, you're probably bringing in one partner, you know, friends yeah. and family that, that's coming along with you in this project. Nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about kind of running the facilities. What's involved mm -hmm. with running? Once you get it, you know, you, you'd, you'd add the lighting and the fence and make mm -hmm. it nice. And mm -hmm. um, do you have to have a full-time person there all the time? Do you have to worry about now managing a, mm -hmm. a huge yeah. team to manage the, you know? R rule of thumb, um, for apartments, and, and and I don't know if this is still the same. It used to be um, ten hours a week for every hundred units you have, and and in self storage, or no, I, I can't even remember what the number was. That that's our number in storage is ten hours for every hundred uh, units that you have. So if you have a four hundred unit facility, um, you've got one full time uh, manager. That that's it. So anything less than that, you're going to kind of dial that back accordingly and have a part time person in there. But then also, you know, many of these are are developed, built, or we are converting them to unmanned facilities where a kiosk really acts as a, the manager. So that's um, that, that, that's the management, the leasing piece. But outside of that, I guess one thing to make clear, Joe, is that we don't have tenant and toilet uh, issues. We don't, you know, it's just not a high touch management type of, of, of asset class, but we still see too many people. Oftentimes, uh, they, they take a set it and forget it mentality with this. And, and, and it is not a hobby. It is not a set it and forget it. 
you need to walk the four corners of your business, uh, both literally and figuratively. And uh, you know, keep an eye on your baseline, your KPIs, making sure that the marketing is in place. And uh, right now, that consists of a, absolutely a website and a SEO and belonging to the aggregators, uh, which are kind of like the price lines of self-storage, um, where multiple facilities come together and pay a fee to get just below the public storage and extra space and you store it to make sure that you're visible because this is a, a commodity. And when people use storage, when they need it, we're in the trauma and transition business. And so when they need it, that's when they're going to go um, to Google it on their phone or on the uh, yeah. on the web, yeah, either way, and look for something that's close to them that has a website that is um, shows a facility that's nice and clean and secure and gives them the ability to rent or reserve a unit online or the ability to go to the site and do it online and check this off the list of things to do. They are not looking to see where this facility is located in terms of, you know, the schools, um, you know, or anything else other than is it close by? Is it safe, secure? Is it clean? Can I rent a unit like right now and get this task off of my list? So that those are the bigger pieces. And then all the rest is accounts receivable and, and just, you know, you know, being a rock star in terms to run your small business, but you've got to be seen and you've got to give people the ability to rent a unit and then have a call center to make sure that um, no call goes unanswered. Um, and I don't mean to a, a voicemail or an answering machine. I mean, if somebody gets, uh, they answer it because it is a commodity. And if uh, nobody answers the yeah. phone, they're going on to the next and you've lost that sale most likely. Yeah, it's really interesting. A couple of years ago, I was looking for a storage facility because we were going to Europe for three months. Mm-hmm. And um, so we needed a big unit to hold all of our stuff because we were mm-hmm. in between moving from houses and... Um, I just went to Google Maps. Yep. And I did a search, you know, Google Maps, search for storage. Mm-hmm. I think I just said storage mm-hmm. and um, found three or four in my area, mm-hmm. called them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I, I don't remember exactly. This is four years, four, four or five years ago. The mm-hmm. um, first one I talked to, I kind of went to them and I didn't even care about the pricing. Mm-hmm. I just wanted something that was nice. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. went to their website, looked mm-hmm. at pictures mm-hmm. and it was close. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, that's, that's interesting. And uh, they kept our stuff for six months. It's a long story. (laughs) It's a horrible story. We went to Europe. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) Well, we went to Europe for three months, Mm -hmm. had a blast, lived like rock stars. Mm -hmm. And with my wife and four kids, went all Mm -hmm. over Europe, did my business while I was there. It wasn't a vacation. I worked while traveling, Mm -hmm. came back and we, it was harder to find a place to live than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And so our stuff stayed in storage for another three, four months Mm -hmm. while we lived in a, our camper Mm -hmm. for three months. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a long story. (laughs) We We didn't find our house until like the week before Christmas. And so imagine being in a camper in November and December in the Midwest Mm-hmm. Right where it's twenty degrees at night, mm-hmm. ten degrees at night, and you're worried about your pipes freezing, and you're looking yeah. in a little camper with six people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, we finally got our stuff out of the storage unit. Um, so th- there's definitely places and times where these things are needed, and they are. Uh, I remember at the time also. This is important to think about. I, I, looking and surprised, there was not more. And two or three that I called were full. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, there's a need for more storage facilities mm-hmm. here. And that's what we find as well. And 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 our market, uh, Joe, is is really three miles. I mean, think about it. If you can, if you remember when you were back looking, you probably weren't going to go more than three miles to be, oh. you know, near your stuff. Oh. And so when you look at, you know, when somebody says that, oh, St. Louis is uh, is overbuilt and Denver is uh, overbuilt. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no such thing because your market is three three miles. So maybe a three mile radius of a site that you found or a building that you're looking to convert or, or an existing facility that you're looking to ramp up and you look at the competition in a three mile radius and if they're all full, guess what? There's probably a demand for another storage facility in that in that area. So And I remember um, this place wasn't right. as nice as I was hoping for either. It needed a lot of updating. This would definitely be your class C 
area. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. interesting. It was an old abandoned church that they converted to a storage facility, and uh, mm-hmm. which was interesting. And they had a big yard and um, gravel lots, but weeds growing everywhere. The, the coming inside, it just looked really run down inside. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lady there who helped us. We got a mm-hmm. big unit. Those were the days. I'm glad we're done with that. Yeah, but, but hey. there, 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 you could have done so much to make that property nicer. Yeah. Utilize more of the space. Mm-hmm. and probably raise rents and they could have done some things to the exterior to make it look not like an old church. You know what I mean? Those are the types of properties uh, that we love to find. Um, it is, it, it's, it's the, you know, quintessential, the mom and pops that yeah. just have fallen behind in the times. And they're, they're still, you know, that thing's probably cranking out cash and they were happy with where they were um, not realizing how much they were leaving on the table. If they would just um, treated their business for what it was, which is a business instead of a hobby. And you know what? It was one of the owners who worked there. Yeah. That's a good sign, isn't it? It is. She was the Absolutely. one working in the, had an office there with her dog, mm-hmm. Stinky. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, maybe I should send you the address of this place. <laughs> yeah, or go over there yourself and take a peek and see if they're still available. <laughs> I love it though. That's exactly what uh, what we're after. Um, interesting. Okay. Let's see. Any questions, other questions? Um, this is a redundant question, maybe, or a dumb question. Is it hard to raise money for these properties? If you don't have the money and you find a good deal, yeah. is it hard to raise money? You know, the same. I mean, it depends on, you know, your offer, what you're offering, you know, for people to invest with you. And, you know, when we syndicate and put these projects together for people to invest with us passively, you know, at that point, um, you know, we're in the money game. We're in the money business. And so we're putting the returns of investing with us out there in the market to essentially compete against other syndications for apartment complexes and uh, mobile home parks um, and you know, retail strip centers. And so we have to be competitive in terms of our returns, the IRR and equity multiples. But what we have working for us is the story that uh, we just told and, and more so is that this is recession resistant and inflation resistant. It has the lowest loan default rate. Uh, we have the, the ability to create this much value in this project and here's how we plan to do it. And we can very accurately you know, plot the path of profitability and the returns in this uh, much easier than we were in some of the other asset classes. And we have um, you know fewer outside economic factors that are weighing in on us. I mean, when the economy tanks and if it happens to tank, um, you know, surprisingly, which it usually doesn't, good, we benefit. And, and if it turns around again, and things are great, and people are buying more stuff and store more stuff, fantastic. You know, we're, we're insulated from that. Um, it's just a, we can accurately predict our returns. And so from that standpoint, you know, we, we have a little bit of a better story to tell. And these folks are, you know, they're, they're like hedge fund folks, and they're like bankers as well. They're looking at the asset class, they've done their homework ahead of time. And, and most of the time, they're seeking us out. We don't have to, you know, convince or persuade many people to invest with us. Uh, they're, they're seeking us. I imagine there's two types of people listening to this right now. Um, One is like, I want to learn how to do this for myself. But another person is like, I want to invest in these kinds of deals. And uh, do do you offer opportunities for both? We do. We offer opportunities for both. How can people reach you? <laughs> I or thought you the... never asked. <laughs> so um, if you're interested on the passive side or people in both camps, if you're looking uh, to invest and look what, uh, see what it's like to syndicate these projects as well, go to PassiveStorageInvesting.com and you can kind of reverse engineer what we're doing. And for those that are looking to invest with us passively, our, our projects are up there on the site. Uh, it talks about who we are and what we do and how we've done it. Our track record um, is all there to see. And for those that are looking to get into and invest in acquiring your first self-storage facility, uh, the converted church that is uh, run by mom with her dog <laughs> that can be um, you know, turned around and, and you can uh, refinance or sell for the, the $500,000 to a $1 million pop. 
uh, go to selfstorageinvesting.com and um, we've got uh, free resources on both sites for you to be able to pull down and yeah. you know get a sense of what it's uh, like to invest in that side of the business. And uh, if you're interested in learning more, that's, uh, that's what we do. Uh, we teach people how to do this business. Yeah, I'm looking here at passivestorageinvesting.com passivestorageinvesting.com. You have over 12,000 units, over mm-hmm. 2 million square feet of storage, mm-hmm. over 30 facilities in nine different states. And you got some really cool properties here, projects where you're uh, looking for some uh, open passive investment opportunities, you call them. Correct. Yep. Yep. We have some available and more coming down the pike, but uh, the ones we have out there right now are very, very strong. And uh, they're filling up quick. Nice. Good information about you, a uh, list of your portfolio, some huge developments. Mm-hmm. Some of these four storage facilities, that man, they're nice. They are, yeah. <laughs> Super cool. And so more information about your company and uh, you guys give a lot of money to charity. It looks like, where is this here? Yeah, we build houses in uh, in Mexico, in Ensenada, yes. Mexico. And uh, we take usually two trips a year. We're going to do one in November. We skip the spring one. Uh, we're forced to, um, but we're going to go down and uh, build uh, two more houses. Um, we, we take a, a team of people down with us, uh, really anybody that wants to go, whether it's our staff, vendors, students, partners, and we, we pay for the whole trip except for the flight to San Diego. You you get your butt to San Diego and we take care of the rest. And uh, we're there for four days. We build a house in two and give it away. And that's our, our way of giving back. But then also, you know, in, in hopes that the people that go with us, um, it, it's a family-friendly mission trip and it may be their first experience that they just see what that's like, get a taste of it. And uh, when they come back, decide um, where it is that they can serve and what that feels like and how that figures into their heart for serving and to go out and do likewise. So I can't wait to get back in November. And uh, Joe, I think uh, I've asked you at least once before, uh, to come on one of these trips uh, with us. And yeah. so the uh, invitation is open for you and your family to come uh, once again. That'd so be cool. there's your accountability. All, your, your entire audience just heard. <laughs> Real quick, that you have to be an accredited investor to invest with you? Um, not in all of our projects. Uh, many of our projects come out as uh, Reg D 506Cs, in which you have to. And I'd say maybe 30% of our projects are, are Reg D 506Bs, where we can accept up to 35 unaccredited investors uh, that invest in our projects. And we have uh, many of those folks uh, that are coming along with us and getting the, the exact same returns as our accredited folks. Nice. And if somebody has a self-directed IRA, would that be a good... Uh... It's the preferred way. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And do you help people set up self-directed IRAs? We do. We do. We have uh, two sources. Uh, We introduce you to both of them and uh, you interview them and pick and choose uh, which company you would like. But um, yeah, we have access uh, to um, folks that take uh, really, really good care of our investors and and guide them in a system as uh, to the best vehicle that they can use to um, either a self-directed IRA or a real estate 401k to invest in our projects. Nice. There's some good articles here. On your website? There's a few from the Wall Street Journal about investors uh, flocking uh, to self-storage, I know, that are in there. And um, one that I didn't have up uh, on there is, um, you know, th- uh, within the past uh, month or so, both Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have invested huge chunks of money into the storage industry, investing yeah. in separate businesses. So there you have it, folks. All, all the cool kids are doing it. So it's time for you to, to jump on board. <laughs> yeah, here, here it is. Five tips for finding a good investment, how to develop mm-hmm. an investment strategy that works, five undeniable reasons to invest in self-storage. And you got a bunch more articles in here. Yeah, I write for Forbes magazine. I'm very, very fortunate that they uh, picked oh, really? me to um, to speak in, on behalf of the industry. And I write articles for them. So some of our articles, um, you can go to Forbes or go to our website and you can pull down some of those uh, articles that we had written. Yeah, that, nice. Uh, did quite a bit of research on and a lot of stats. Five tips for investing in a self-storage business. Mm-hmm. Cool. Again, this website is PassiveStorageInvesting.com, PassiveStorageInvesting.com. And somebody wants to learn to do it themselves, you have SelfStorageInvesting.com. Correct. You got a webinar coming up here, it looks like. We do. 
You do a lot of webinars if somebody misses this one? Uh, we do. We do a lot. And um, some of those are recorded that you can go back, but uh, it's not the same as uh, when you're live and being able to answer your questions. Uh, yeah. we, we get excited when it's uh, when it's webinar day around here because I get it to, to take a break from the day-to-day and do what I love to do, which is uh, teach and uh, answer questions and um, help people to maybe get over their fears and, and uh, move forward. And you have a mastermind. Are you still running that? We are also one of my favorite things to do because I get to step away from the day to day and um, yeah. we get to our, ours is a little different than some of the uh, those that uh, Joe, you were involved in and, and we've been in together where we focus a lot on deals that people yeah. bring and we match up um, private equity with the deals and wholesale and share. We still share a lot of be- best business practices and talk uh, about self-storage and what people are doing and how to grow and scale it. Uh, but we have that added component of moving money and moving deals around in, in the group. And it's uh, it's just a ton of fun. And uh, I feel is my my highest and best use. Your last mastermind, you had over 14 deals presented, 14 mm-hmm. different deals, over $63 million. The average deal size was four and a half million. Only handpicked participants are invited. Correct. People can raise capital for the deals there. Mm-hmm. There is only one self-storage mastermind, and this is it. That is correct. Yeah. And, and we uh, held that in your backyard, Joe. We and we're did. getting ready to come back in November in Innsbruck. Remember, we chatted about this in oh, Florida. Oh, that's right. Yes. And we're coming back in November. So we'll have to get together or you can come out to the mastermind and see what it's all about. I I would love to do that. That would be awesome. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you offline about yep. in November. Cool, guys. Uh, I've known Scott for a long time. He's got integrity. Very few people mm-hmm. in this business care about integrity like Scott does. And so if you guys are at all interested in the self-storage business, I really highly recommend, the only guy I'd recommend would be Scott Myers. Um, check out his websites, dig in some, some information. Um, you can see their actual projects that they're doing, that they've done in there. Scott, I appreciate you being on the podcast. I really do. I appreciate the opportunity, Joe. It's always good to connect with you once again. And I'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yes. All right. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you guys all later. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.